So if you're wondering uh, how uh, Ava's reading from Leviticus about the rules regarding mold in a house are going to relate to our New Testament reading uh, this morning. <laughs> well, what I have to tell you is that sermon writing is a process. And early in the week, I thought there was a connection uh, but by the time the sermon came out, I'm unsure of the connection. So uh, it was an unusual passage this morning. It is the word of the Lord. Um, but let us now turn our attention to our New Testament reading. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, verses 31 through 43. So the, Lord, uh, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you be present with us this morning as we uh, sing your praises and gather with your people as we... um, study your word. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit, which inspired your scriptures, uh, that that same Holy Spirit might illuminate our minds this morning so that we might uh, know what it is that you would have us know. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a few uh, weeks since we read Acts chapter 8. And there we have recorded for us the aftermath of the martyrdom of Stephen. And in that chapter we read, this is Acts 8, uh, verse 1 through 3. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. On television we Uh, see pictures of refugees from places at war, the Syrian 
Civil war has created 12 million refugees, 12 million people who have abandoned their houses and homes and to find safety elsewhere, anywhere. Think for a moment how bad things would have to be in Bucks County or in Montgomery County or in Philadelphia before you would pack a few bags and stuff them into your car and drive away from your house, maybe to never return and head into some place that you don't know anything about, how bad does it have to be before you become a refugee? Pretty bad. Seriously bad. And that's how it was for Christians in Jerusalem in the first months after Pentecost. People were getting killed. Christians were abandoning their homes and they were running for their lives. But here's the interesting thing. It didn't stay that way forever. It got better. In our reading from Acts chapter 9 this morning, we hear, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. That's quite a change. One day you're running for the hills, you're abandoning house and home, and the next it seems like everything is great. Peace reigns throughout the land. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. Now we have other clues that allow us to estimate that about three years had gone by since the first persecution broke out until this time of peace arrived. And keep in mind that when we're talking about persecution of the church, we don't mean someone unfriending you on Facebook. We're talking about people getting killed. People getting killed in a kind of religious, tribal, mob justice lynchings, we might call them, with government officials either looking the other way or actually helping. But thanks be to God, that persecution did not go on forever. Things got better. And that persecution had the effect of spreading the church outside of Jerusalem. If Satan were smart, Satan is crafty, but he's not smart, because if he's smart, he would worship Jesus. If Satan were smart, he would have left the church alone in Jerusalem, where it probably would have remained no more than a burr under his saddle. But instead, he starts persecuting the church, and then all heaven breaks loose. Trying to stamp out the church by killing Christians is like trying to put out a grease fire by throwing a bucket of water on it. In the lives of Christians, sometimes things go from bad to better a little at a time, gradually, incrementally. And sometimes things go from bad to better all at once. Boom! Things just change. Both of these kinds of change for the better are real. And both of these kinds of change for the better will happen in your life if you are in Christ. Our scripture reading this morning touches on at least three, perhaps four sudden changes. So I want to talk about sudden changes in the Christian life. But first I want to talk about gradual change uh, in the Christian life because that's the more common kind of change. Sanctification is the fancy theological term that we use for the gradual process by which a Christian becomes more and more like Christ. 
becomes more and more holy in his conduct, in his words, in his thoughts. As we are sanctified, the desires of the flesh rule us less. As we are sanctified, Satan and the world have less of a grip on us. As we're sanctified, we find ourselves more free from the bondage of sin. More able to walk in purity and in truth. That change does not happen all at once. And that process of change doesn't stop until that day we meet God face to face. The moment we're born again, we stop being children of wrath and we become the adopted children of God. That change, the change in which family we belong to, that change happens in an instant. The instant we're born again. But it takes a while before we begin to look like and act like and sound like the new family that we've joined. Well, it doesn't take just a while. In fact, it takes your whole life, that gradual change for the better. But it's always important when we're in the process of change to remember how far we've come, to remember where we began. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes the former life of the Christians uh, in that church. Paul writes, In the past you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them. And lived according to our natural desires. Doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and our minds. In our natural condition, we like everyone else were destined to suffer God's anger. Now that's the good news translation. The language of the ESV might be more familiar to you. Where we read at the end of that passage, you were by nature children of wrath. So here's Paul's description of a regular person before their conversion to Christ. Spiritually dead. Full of disobedience and sin. Following the world's evil ways. Obeying the ruler of the spiritual powers in space. That's just a way of saying obeying Satan. Living according to our natural desires, whatever our minds or bodies want. And children of wrath destined to suffer God's anger. Paul is describing every unconverted person, including good neighbors and upstanding citizens, including kind and respectable people. Paul is even talking about himself prior to his own conversion. This is a description of how we're born. We're born into a fallen condition. We're born into a fallen world. So how does something made by a good God become so messed up? God is good. His creation was good. What went wrong? The answer is misdirected desire. Misdirected desire is the single cause of all of our troubles. God implanted in every human heart a desire for communion with him. All of us, whether we know it or not, have a built-in desire to know God and to love God, to be known by God, to be loved by God. We all have a built-in desire for intimacy with God. But in our fallen condition, those desires become twisted and misdirected toward the wrong thing, which is deeply sad. 
I was in the five below this past week with my daughter Mia. Mia likes to go there to buy stuffed animals and squishy things. And as she was shopping, I was walking around the store and I was struck by how many of the products in that store were being sold to fulfill a misdirected desire for God. Books on uh, kind of self-directed, godless spirituality. Dime store bling so that I can look rich even though I'm poor. Beauty products for people who were born beautiful. The longings that motivate us are not necessarily wrong, but what those longings have been directed toward, where the world and the devil have told us that those desires will be satisfied, those things are empty and meaningless, and it just makes me sad. But that's our world, and that's the condition we've been born into, so we have to deal with it, and we need to be honest about it. Those who've heard the good news of the gospel see the falseness of what this world and what the ruler of this world have to offer. And when we are born again, we turn away from this world and we turn toward God. God is the real object of our desire. And as we move toward God, we have our desires met and our longings are satisfied. Think about it in terms of the food that we eat. So our bodies... We're made by God to flourish, to be healthy, when we feed them healthy food. I don't cook very much at my house, but one meal that I do make for our family is pork chops and mashed potatoes and string beans. Now, that's 100% healthy. That's 100% natural. It's 100% satisfying. Everything the body needs to thrive and to be healthy is provided there. But how many times when I go home hungry, do I stuff my face with tasty cakes and Oreos? And then 15 minutes later, regret it. The hunger is healthy. The desire is God-given. But the world and the devil and our flesh direct those desires to things that satisfy for the moment, but that actually destroy us and destroy our health. Sin is not a bad desire. Sin is satisfying a good desire with bad things. Our deep desire is for God, but so often instead of feasting on God, we fill ourselves up with junk. So that's the human condition. I don't need to harp on it. I trust that you understand that and recognize that in yourself. But as a born-again Christian, our minds and our hearts have been enlightened. And we see that God is the good that we're actually longing for. And we repent of trying to satisfy our longings with a bunch of junk. And we turn to God and begin to find our satisfaction in Him. That's a good thing. That's the crucial first step. That conversion, that turning around. But like a person who is trying to acquire healthy habits of a good diet, all too often we find ourselves turning back to the bad habits, to gorging ourselves on garbage. And sanctification is that slow process of acquiring new healthy habits. doesn't happen all at once. Here's how Paul describes it. 
This is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, that sounds a little complicated, but here's uh, what Paul is describing. We turn to Christ. The veil, which had blocked our vision before, the veil is removed, and we begin to see Christ with an unveiled face, the way we might look into a mirror. And as we gaze at Christ, instead of looking at the junk of the world, as we gaze at Christ, we begin to be transformed. We begin to be changed into the image of Christ. As we gaze at Christ, we begin to look like Christ. Do you know that if you look at someone who is smiling, you'll start smiling yourself? I'm not sure how it works, but it's true. And the opposite is true too. If our eyes are always on the poison of this world, on hate and lust and violence and chaos, our hearts will be filled with poison too. Which is why we need to guard our eyes and our ears and our minds. Which is why we need to take seriously the things that we look at. We become like the things that we focus on. When our eyes are on Christ, we look like Christ. That's called sanctification. And Paul tells us that that comes from the Lord. This ability to turn our gaze away from the junk of the world to the purity of God. We don't see God, of course, unless God removes the veil from us. Now, I admire Paul. I always have. I admire his commitment and his passion and his fearlessness and his doggedness. For me, Paul is the super Christian. But Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, Paul knows that he is not yet fully sanctified. Paul knows that he hasn't arrived. None of us arrive until the day we meet Christ face to face. And then in that moment, we will be finally and fully transformed. We'll be perfectly Sanctified. Here's uh, what Paul writes. Not that I have already attained or that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our sanctification is a lifelong process. It is a slow changing from chaos to order, from worldliness to godliness, from brokenness to wholeness, from craziness to sanity, from distraction to focus, from dissipation to saturation. Some things in the Christian life are gradual. They happened over time. As a Christian, you should have every expectation that you will grow in grace as the years pass, that you will become more satisfied with God over time, that your life will become more in line with God's plan for your life over time. It doesn't happen all at once. And for that reason, we don't despair And when we mess up and gorge ourselves on Oreos, we don't give up hope. We just turn back to Christ and start looking at Him again. And in time, little by little, we start 
becoming as beautiful as God planned for us to be. We need to be patient. We need to be persistent. We need to be hopeful because these changes for the better happen slowly. So that's a little bit about the gradual changes in the Christian life. But not all changes in the Christian life are slow and gradual. Some changes are instantaneous. Some changes are like a meteor crashing to the earth. And our reading in the Acts of the Apostles lifts up several of these instantaneous changes wrought by Jesus, these sudden and remarkable reversals of fortune. So I want to take a look at those this morning. So the first sudden and remarkable reversal that is in this text actually is not in the scene, but is is in the background. And uh, that, of course, is the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, which we co- talked about a couple weeks ago. John Piper writes about uh, that conversion this way. He writes, So suddenly, out of the blue, Jesus takes the key player in the persecution of his people and turns him totally around on the Damascus road. Saul, who was breathing out threats and murder against Christians, doesn't just drop dead, which would have been a big enough reversal for the enemy. He gets converted to Christianity, and not just converted, but wildly converted, beyond anyone's imagination. So converted that he totally turns around from being the worst enemy of Christianity to being the strongest advocate and most powerful missionary for Christianity. End of quote. And as we learned last week, Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the persecuted. Saul starts preaching in the synagogues and the Jews in Damascus plot to kill him. And he has to escape by being let out a window in the wall of the city. That's sudden and remarkable reversal number one. The conversion of Saul. Jesus did that. That conversion was 100% Jesus. Saul didn't come looking for Jesus. Saul wasn't looking to get himself saved. All Saul did was get himself knocked to the ground. Saul was the clay in the hands of the potter in that sudden and remarkable turnaround. Thanks be to God. Some changes in the Christian life happen gradually. But some happen all at once. So we need to be ready for that. Sudden and remarkable reversal number two is the peace that the church began to enjoy. After storm clouds of persecution, suddenly the sun shines on the church and everything is well. And Jesus did that. That peace is 100% a gift from Jesus. The church didn't fight its way to peace. The church didn't defeat its enemies. They're all still there. The church didn't win the cultural war and then enjoy peace. All the church did was to keep on keeping on. And then Jesus gave them a time of relief. A respite after a time of hard persecution. Thanks be to God. Some of the changes in the Christian life happen gradually. But some changes happen all at once. And so we need to be ready for those. Sudden and remarkable reversal number three was the healing of Aeneas. For eight years, this man lay in bed paralyzed. 
For eight years, this man had to be taken care of by other people. For eight years, this man was a non-productive burden to society. Now, sometimes we think of work as a burden, how sweet it would be to have other people take care of us and to wait on us hand and foot. But being unable to take care of yourself, being unable to contribute, in fact, is hell. This paralyzed man suffered in his body because something was wrong with his nervous system, but he also suffered in his spirit because everyone had to take care of him. His wife, maybe, his children, and there he lay on his bed, having nothing to offer, nothing to contribute to the household. That's got to be worse than the actual paralysis. But Jesus heals him instantly. Like an unexpected bolt out of the blue. One day Peter is passing through the town, probably doing a tour of the Christian communities that had sprung up outside of Jerusalem. And he finds this paralyzed man, bedridden, and he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. The healing of this man leads immediately to his being productive. Peter doesn't say, Jesus heals you, Aeneas. Why don't you go over to your lazy boy and let me bring you a cup of tea? The man is healed, and a sign of his healing is that he is immediately able to care for himself and do some of the work around the house. You're healed, now get up and make your bed. What a blessing that must have been. To be able to make his own bed after eight years of having other people do that for him. And Jesus did that instantly. Thanks be to God. Some changes in the Christian life happen gradually. But some happen all at once. So we need to be ready for those. Sudden and remarkable reversal number four is the resurrection of Tabitha. Tabitha was a good woman. The widows grieved her passing. But for some reason, the disciples sent two men to call Peter. He was in a nearby town. They invite him to come see Tabitha, who's, you know, lying there in an upper room laid out. She's dead. I'm not sure what what they were expecting. Peter comes, sends everyone out of the room, and he gets down on his knees to pray. By the way, an unusual posture for prayer at that time. He gets down on his knees to pray, and then he speaks to the corpse, and he says, Tabitha, get up. And in that moment, a woman who was dead stopped being dead. And Jesus did that. A sudden and remarkable reversal. Some changes in the Christian life happen gradually, but some happen all at once, and we need to be ready for that. Most of life is a long stretch of slow evolutionary change. Our sanctification is largely a matter of new habits replacing old habits, and old habits die hard. The switch to new habits happens gradually. It happens over time. Our lives will look more and more like Christ as time goes on. None of us are perfect yet. So we don't rest on our laurels. We don't take a vacation from spiritual growth. Each day we should 
We strive to walk closer to Christ every day. We should strive to reflect His glory a a little more fully. But not all of life's changes are gradual. Sometimes God will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Before his conversion, Saul knew a lot about Jesus. But he didn't see that Jesus was the Son of God. And he didn't understand what the death of Jesus meant. And he certainly had no plans of worshiping this man. But then Jesus shows up in a way that can't be denied. And a whole lot of stuff snaps into place, snaps into focus in that instant. I can't explain why it happens that way. But I do know that God will speak to an individual little by little over time and then all of a sudden one day the lights will go on and everything will make sense. And then there's no going back. They understand that Jesus is Lord. They realize that anyone without Jesus is forever lost and they cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's a sweet day when that happens. If that hasn't happened to you yet, don't worry. It could happen at any time. I don't know how it happens, but I do know that it does happen. Jesus shows up and people are changed in an instant. Some of the changes in the Christian life are gradual. Some things get better little by little over time. But other changes in the Christian life are all of a sudden things go from bad to better in a moment. And we need to keep our eyes open for both. The word of the Lord for us today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God and that you made this world, that you made us, that you love us. We thank you that you are a God who turns things around. We thank you that we see you turning lives around. We thank you that one day you will turn this whole world around. We thank you that you've already turned history around in the cross. We pray that you would turn our nation around. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would turn our church around. We pray that you would turn around marriages and families. We pray that our communities would be turned around. We pray that your kingdom would come. Lord Jesus, for those of us who have not yet seen the light, we pray that you would come upon us like a ton of bricks. We pray that you would remove the veil. Show us your glory. Let us gaze into your face. Give us the faith to cling to you as our only hope in this life and in the life to come. And then, Lord, after you have grabbed hold of us and converted us, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work on us, that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would continue to make us look more and more like Jesus a little bit each day. I pray that our lives would be better tomorrow than they are today. I pray that we would be making things better 
all around us a little bit each day. I pray that we would be a force of good in our families and in this church and in our communities. I pray that you would bless other people through us. I pray that we would be a source of light and life to people who are suffering in darkness. I pray that you would give us the privilege of testifying to the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ.